0: Thank you for listening to The Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School.
1: Welcome to a new episode of The Voices of UMass Chan. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications. Today, we're talking about COVID-19 tests They are one of the best tools we have, there's no question about that, but how much do you really know about when and how to rely on those tests that are in your bathroom cabinet. Nearly three years into the pandemic, there is still a lot of confusion. And so to refresh our understanding and to learn what's new, we're turning to two experts uh, from right here at UMass Chan. Nate Hafer is an Associate Professor of Molecular Medicine and Apurv Soni is an Assistant Professor of Medicine. Uh, Hello to both of you and thank you for making time.
0: Hi, great to be here
2: today. Thank you, Jen. Looking forward to this.
1: I'm sure that you're getting a lot of these questions from your family, your friends, your colleagues, um, because the testing situation has changed. So we're gonna make sure that we bring people up to up to speed, especially as we're going into the holidays and we're gonna be spending time with uh, different groups of people. So just to begin, you are both part of a team that has played a really critical role in developing and then ensuring the accuracy of COVID tests that we've all been using since the beginning of the pandemic. So let's start with that. You co-led the National Institutes of Health Rapid Acceleration Diagnostics Tech Clinical Studies Core Logistics Team, also known as RADx here at UMass Chan. It's a grant from the NIH. What was the goal of that massive undertaking?
0: Yes. I mean, so, you know, if you think back to the spring of 2020, we didn't really have a lot of testing capacity in the U.S., and uh, the tests that we did have had to go through uh, a hospital or a large testing center like Quest or LabCorp, Mm -hmm. and the capacity was really just not what it needed to be uh, to identify people who were infected with SARS-CoV-2. And so the NIH, with a lot of support from Congress and uh, the taxpayers, uh, launched this large program to accelerate the uh, development and uh, commercialization of SARS-CoV-2 tests. And so that's what we were a part of. And we've been at it ever since the spring of 2020.
1: There was such a need for tests in those early days, like you were saying. Um, Refresh our memory. When did we start to see the rollout of the at-home version of the tests?
0: I think they started to become more common sort of in the winter of 2021. And then you know, by spring and summer, they were really more common than they had ever really been before.
2: Yeah, and to add to that, especially given our role within RADx um, Clinical Studies Score, we first came across them very early on in December of 2020. At that time, some of the questions that we were asked to uh, help answer were, are these usable? Will people use them if you send them to uh, uh, to their doorstep? And then, can you distribute them in large quantities across different communities, uh, so that it becomes one of the uh, one of the arrows in our quiver for tar- kind of managing pandemic? And so that allowed us to start uh, studies that were test at home studies, uh, distributing uh, large quantities of tests uh, to vulnerable populations uh, in partnerships with Radix Up, uh, which is Radix Underserved Population, another arm of a program, and and that really prepared us when the uh, second kind of 2021 wave came around to have a lot of the confidence, both from a public health, as well as a medicine and science perspective to uh, rely on the antigen tests.
1: Mm-hmm. The pace. Uh, at which this all happened is really still remarkable in hindsight, similar to with the vaccines. So uh, this research that was led by both of you and your colleagues here at UMass Chan continues to really form the basis of the Food and Drug Administration's safety recommendations and how they talk about at-home testing. As recently as this summer, the FDA recommends that if you do use a home test and it's negative, then you should do what they call serial testing, S-E-R-I-A-L, no breakfast foods involved. So what is serial testing?
2: In very common terms, serial testing is repeat testing, especially if you test negative, you should test using antigen tests that are a little bit less sensitive than some of the molecular tests, but much more accessible. As you mentioned, many of families around the country have them in their medicine cabinet. So when you're relying on these home tests, um, the ability to improve the performance of them for detecting the virus increases when you use them serially or uh, in a repeated manner. But how to use that uh, was an open question that FDA had and a requirement that FDA had for all of the antigen test companies. To do that study, especially doing that study for people that are asymptomatic but may be infected, was uh, like finding needle in the haystack. Actually, was title of one of the papers that we published, and and so that's where FDA and NIH collaborated with us to innovate our ability to do these clinical studies, so that we are able to cast a very wide net, enroll a lot of people from across the country, uh, and understand exactly when they test positive on a very sensitive PCR test, and in associate or in relation to that, when they test positive on the antigen test. What that required us to do was do a lot of testing uh, for uh, among a group of individuals and catch people right at the onset of infection. And that data has informed the FDA guidance on doing serial testing or report test, uh, repeat testing for when you have symptoms and when you don't have symptoms.
1: So let's make this crystal clear for folks. So if, if I have symptoms, I take a test, it's negative. When do I take another test?
2: In that case, you should take another test Uh, at 48 hours, okay, and if that test is negative, it's highly likely nine out of 10 times uh, that you don't have COVID infection or SARS-CoV infection. Conversely, if you are asymptomatic and you take a test today, you're negative, you should take another test again at 48 hours. If that's negative again, you should take a third test 48 hours after that.
1: So if you don't have symptoms, you feel fine, take three tests, two days apart. And if you do have symptoms, take two tests, two days apart. And even if they're both negative, assume that you have COVID because you have the symptoms.
2: Assume that you have some kind of virus or some kind of infection. It may not be COVID, but you are feeling symptomatic and have a high chance of passing on whatever bug you have to someone else that you come in contact with. If you're symptomatic and you do two tests um, and both of them are negative, there is a um, 5% chance that you have COVID infection and antigen test missed it. But that chance is low enough where no test is perfect, including PCR tests that you get at uh, doctor's office. Uh, so that's the uh, threshold that FDA decided where they feel comfortable saying uh, that that's the, that's the testing criteria that's needed.
1: Obviously the holiday season is here. A lot of us are gonna be traveling maybe for the first time in a long time, we're gonna be gathering with family, friends, coworkers, people that we might not really see on a regular basis. So how should we think about using COVID tests to protect ourselves and our loved ones before these gatherings? Should we be testing two days before Christmas?
0: Based on what you know, we found in our, in our study, the really the best thing for somebody would be to do that if they don't have symptoms, to do that, you know, four four day testing, right, with three different tests. So, if Thanksgiving is on Thursday, you know, you sort of how many, you know, go back however many days to start that testing regimen. Now, taking three tests and over that many time, you know, that's the cost. Of course, adds up, and and so one or two tests is certainly better than none. And and if you can have all three, that that's really what gives you the greatest sensitivity or or Chance to detect what uh, a positive or negative uh, infection more than anything else.
1: Dr. Sony, anything to add to that?
0: No, I, I, that's exactly
2: right. I mean, uh, that's what you need to do to be uh, ultra confident in your ability to not pass on the infection to others. And I think a lot of us apply common sense where we're not feeling great, we're not seeing each other. And so if you're symptomatic, and that's where kind of if you do the test that day, even if it's negative, people. Um, that are symptomatic, should not join large gatherings to keep others safe. If you're asymptomatic and you test negative, even if you didn't get a chance to test uh, the week leading up to it, if you're asymptomatic and you test negative, you can be uh, have a, a level of confidence in that you won't be passing the infections on to others too much if the antigen test is negative. Because the other thing we have observed through all of the studies is when people are asymptomatic and test negative but later on de- have develop an infection, the speed with which the viral grows in the body is not fast enough where if they were around other people, they would uh, pass infection on to others. Now, that's taking a chance, mm-hmm. but it's a calculated chance that individuals can take. So if you wanted to be really confident, exactly what uh, Nate said, do tests leading up to the event. But if you are in a in a bind and you're going to be around surrounded by your grandmas or young children, and want to be really safe, make sure you're asymptomatic and and do an antigen test.
1: And and as an MD, in addition to a PhD, Doctor Sony, if anybody does test positive, what's your advice? Stay home. Is it okay to mask? What what do you tell patients?
2: I think it's best to stay home uh, if you test positive, and wear a mask if you must be around other people. Isolation is uh, recommended and should be should be performed. However, it's really hard to do, especially in uh, in a large family home. So may, wearing a mask if you're uh, if you're around other people is uh, is really helpful. And the other thing now in 2022 we have more options available for treatment. It doesn't require an emergency room visit doesn't require a hospitalization and Initiating uh, antiviral treatment, weight uh, and another antiviral treatment could be done over the phone with a telehealth visit or mm-hmm. could be done through an urgent care visit, so especially if you have um, other chronic conditions or have other health conditions that puts you at high risk. You should consult with your primary care provider or, in, or an urgent care provider and get treatment uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, if you develop symptoms, those treatment are very effective and help shorten the duration of the uh, of your course of symptoms
1: right and also of course we hope that people are continuing to get their COVID vaccines get their boosters as as, uh, recommended, and that also offers another level of protection for yourself and everybody around you. Um, In November, the FDA issued an amendment modifying the intended use and labeling of all COVID-approved antigen tests. Can you just tell us what that's about? What does it mean?
0: This is a really nice example of how the work that we've done at UMass Chan is really impacting the way that testing advice is given nationally and, uh, you know, how people should be monitoring and checking their health, uh, you know, due to the work that, that we've done led by a PERV and with many others, um, the data that we've collected showed that the best way to detect, uh, a SARS cov two infection, if you're symptomatic is to do two tests and if you're asymptomatic to do three tests, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the FDA, looking at that evidence has said that test manufacturers really need to change the way that they label their tests and the way that they recommend that their tests are used to match this new uh, data that's emerged and so so as a result everybody's the manufacturers of these different tests are going to be changing what their kits the information in their kits say and that's uh that's due to the work of of the team here at UMass champ
1: and we have confidence that the tests are picking up the new variants as they emerge. So, you know, we started with like Delta, Omicron. Now there's, it's like alphabet soup, right? BA-5, BN-1. There probably will be a new variant at some point in the near future. So can we have confidence that those are being detected by our at-home tests?
2: We do, uh, Jen and um uh... Part of what informs the confidence is uh, two different sets of uh, key information that we have collected. Uh, one information is this large study that, uh, that Nate described that became the basis for FDA to uh, update its indications for using antigen tests. That went from October of 2021 until February of uh, 2022. And so it covered both delta and early strains of Omicron variants. And what we observed because of this natural experiment that occurred, given that there were two different variants that um, our participants um, were infected with, is the antigen test performs similarly for both of those variants. There have been newer variants since the study ended um, that are BA4, BA5, and some of the ones, uh, the newer ones that are more chimeric variants so that they're a little bit of a combination of the subvariants of the Omicron uh, variant. We don't have clinical study data the way we did with our testers at home uh, or this large study, but we have analytical data, data that's per- uh, based on experiments done in research labs that shows that the structure of the new variants and the way the antigen test detected is the same. And and in that controlled environment, the ability to test uh, the new variants is the same for antigen test. The the one caveat I would add to this is uh, nearly every one of us knows people that were really sick and kept testing negative on antigen test. And what we have now come to understand more of uh, of the virus is um, we expect virus to be mostly present in your nose in the nasal cavity and that's where we take the sample for doing the antigen test and that's where every antigen test sample should be taken from it should be done from the nose if it's authorized by fda to be used from the nose however some of the uh, some of the variants more have a proclivity uh, to be more in the mouth, which is still part of your respiratory system and upper upper airway, and and so oftentimes the compartmentalization of the virus that occurs can end up escaping the uh, our ability to test positive for the virus. That that's not completely variant dependent, but some variants uh, do tend to com- compartmentalize more in the mouth versus nose, and that varies from person to person.
1: That's really interesting. So do you expect that the at-home COVID tests that we're all using will change? Like, will the formula keep changing as the virus changes?
0: Yeah, you know, th- this has been a really common question. Thinking about things from sort of the molecular biology point of view, uh, the a lot of these rapid tests that are out there, they have antibodies on them that are detecting fragments of the viral proteins and almost all of them that are marketed here in the us those antibodies detect what's called the the n protein or the nucleocapsid protein it's one of the most common components of the sars cov2 virus and so that's one of the reasons why it's used you know as these new viral variants emerge you know you hear in the news oh you know it's mutated it's changed and all this different stuff often what people are talking about are really is the spike protein Mm-hmm. which is the, the part of the virus which is you know, latching onto cells in our, in our body and, and moving, into the, moving into those cells to make us sick. Uh, the nucleocapsid protein tends to also mutate, but it mutates at a much lower rate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so because of that, the, the antibodies on our different tests are still able to detect new variants as they emerge. And so we saw that with the Delta to Omicron transition, like I was saying earlier, and we've seen that with, you know, every sort of sub variant of Omicron that's come along since, you know, the early parts of 2022. Now that said, I I think we can predict that at some point the virus will change to the to a certain extent and the tests that are out there, which have, you know, the antibodies on them are gonna lose their ability to detect the virus. And at that point, people, test makers, will have to change their, their kits and uh, adapt accordingly. We, we'd expect that because we see that with flu and other tests that are out there for respiratory viruses. But at this point, we we haven't seen the SARS-CoV-2 virus change enough to warrant those kinds of changes in, in COVID tests.
1: And Dr. Hafer, it, it, does that also help to explain why in some individuals they continue to test positive for a, a long period of time? Is that related at all? Or Like, why does that happen to some people?
0: Mm, well, that the, the repeat positive testing has to do with how the virus is cleared out of the body once, as the infection winds down. And so if, you know, antigen mm-hmm. tests tend to go from positive to negative a little bit uh, first compared to a PCR test. And that's just because the proteins and that type of material from the virus tends to break down or be removed by the body first. But the viral nucleic acids, which is the part that's detected by a PCR test, tends to hang around for longer periods in the respiratory tract. And because those PCR tests are so sensitive, they can uh, continue to show somebody positive for weeks or even months after uh, after the, sort of the the acute phase of the infection passes.
2: There is we have observed um, a subset of population and people uh, that continuously test positive even if they have not recently tested positive, and that often ends up varying from test to test. Um, it has to do again with more molecular biology that Nate was describing, but uh, there's also a growing understanding, although not a complete understanding that there is some of the autoimmune molecules that interfere with uh, with the antigen detection and create a false positive test. Mm. In fact, my wife was one of them that um, last holidays was testing positive on one of the antigen tests, got a PCR test, was negative, did a repeat antigen test with a different company's antigen test and was negative. So there is a real phenomena that's happening that we suspect has to do with people that have some autoimmune conditions and have remotoid factors and and other other agents that interfere with detection, but that's not a completely um, understood phenomena. So there is recognition that that happens, but not a full understanding of it. That remains true uh, that some people, once they test positive, are positive on antigen test for a prolonged period of time. And especially for some of the newer variants, that's the case. And we have some ongoing studies that are trying to get to the bottom of it. Is are those people truly positive and infectious, or is there some artifact that's happening that's uh making them be positive for a long period of time?
1: So interesting. There's still so much for us to learn. And thanks. Th- we're so thankful for the research that you're doing. And along those lines, Dr. Sony, I don't want to let this conversation end without asking you about this uh concept of a sightless trial in, in terms of how it affects. Like health equity and 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 access to this kind of research, and making sure that people from all backgrounds are included in this research, um, so that they can glean benefit from the results of the research, like reducing health disparities. So, can you just talk a little bit about that and and how these sightless trials actually really support health equity?
2: Absolutely, it's um it's one of the areas of of interest of mine, and because I think it has one of the uh greatest uh, power to be an equalizer. What's accelerated the advancement of siteless studies is uh, greater engagement of community stakeholders, as well as more ubiquitous um, availability of uh, health technology and internet. What we, the way we think about this is, digital siteless studies allows anyone from anywhere at any time to participate, as opposed to families that are so time strapped by all of the day-to-day responsibilities they have that they cannot fit in to their day-to-day schedule, traveling to a research site to consent to a study, to uh, contribute to science by providing samples or by uh, answering questionnaires. Instead, what we have been able to do through support from NIH and partnership with uh, with our community partners from across the country is uh, develop smartphone apps that people can in- install in their um, on their smartphones and then consent through that I answer questions through that, and we also have partnered with other companies that allow us to ship the test directly to their uh, patients' home, including collection of blood sample using some of the self-collection uh, uh, tools. We can uh, painlessly collect blood from people and have it be shipped back to a uh, to a central lab. So this really allows us uh, great opportunities to continue to understand more of what uh, causes diseases and how we can manage them better, but Without having to burden our participants and our patients to uh, come to a travel, uh, c- come to a research site.
1: That's such an important development when you think about uh, all that you'll be able to learn about that. And I like how you said it: anyone, anywhere, anytime. Well, thank you both for your time and for explaining this, especially as we head into the holidays where we're all going to be traveling and gathering with friends and family. This is such great information. Thanks for making time. My
0: pleasure. Thank you.
1: And thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications. I hope you'll follow us on social media at UMass Chan and subscribe to the Voices of UMass Chan wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.